Well, it is good to be back. I was, I was out of town preaching at another church last week, and it was a great church, solid church, big church, everything else, but it wasn't Foundry. There's something special about Foundry. I really did miss being here. I missed uh, getting to worship with each and every one of you. It was great to be back. And today we're in part three of Anything Goes, questions you submitted. And I'll tell you what, you submitted some tough questions. I was kind of hoping some softballs would be thrown in. Like, you know, just how loving is God? And the answer would be very loving. But instead you started off asking, like, what about the problem of evil? How can evil exist if God is good? And then you also asked a question about, hey, is the God of the Old Testament and New Testament the same or different? And, and because it seems like God's violent in the Old Testament and loving in the New Testament, Matt addressed that last week. And then you guys asked this question about hell. Now, can I talk about hell for a second? I mean, I will for like the next 25 minutes worth of seconds, but I want to talk about hell for just a minute. I preached my very first sermon on a Sunday morning when I was 17 years old. And, and I'd only preached once before. Yeah, a few of you were actually there. And a few of you go back that far. And I preached this message. My dad was out of town. He was a pastor. He had heard me preach one time before. I preached for our youth group a week or two before. And he's, he, for whatever reason, invited this 17-year-old to preach for him while he was gone, which is dangerous. And I said, Dad, what do you want me to preach on? He said, preach on anything. And I think it was like Good Friday. That's, that's like, or it's like the, the week before. We were Palm Sunday or something. We were getting ready to celebrate Easter. So you should probably do something happy and like Jesus is Lord and he's gonna rise from the dead. And I decided to preach on hell as a 17-year-old because you people need to hear about hell. That's what, I guess that's what I thought. And, and, it's, and hell's, hell's a heavy topic. As a 17-year-old, I was like, let's do it. And, and I've come so far in my life because I was reading a book on hell this week uh, to get ready for this message series, this sermon today. And I was sitting on an airplane flying back from, I was out of town, and I felt awkward reading this book. It's called Four Views on Hell. And I'm sitting there next to two really sweet people. One's watching the Italian job, the other one's staring out the window, which I love. He's a 50-year-old man staring out the window. Like, I still do the same thing. I just want to see, like, ooh, if we're flying. And so I'm sitting there reading, and I feel awkward about reading a book on four views of hell. I'm like, I'm afraid they'll think I actually believe this stuff. I'm afraid they'll think that I'm weird. I'm reading this book on hell. And I've come so far in my life, from 17 years old, speaking on hell for my first message, all the way to, ooh, let's flip that over so they can't see it. When the stewardess comes by with my pretzels, let's turn that down to where they can't see it. I think a lot of us feel this way about hell. Like, hell is not a fun thought. And a lot of us really struggle with the idea of hell because a lot of us have known people and loved people who have died and not had a relationship with Jesus, which means that they go to hell. And so this isn't so much a question of, well, what does the Bible say, although it is. It's more a question of how do, how do we handle that? How do we handle what the Bible says in light of people we've known? So today we're going to spend a little bit of time digging into this question. It was a question that was asked. Several people asked about hell. This is the question we'll be talking about. Does God really send people to hell? How is that fair? How is that? I want to focus on the fair one as well. So we're going to be in our Bibles today. If you have your Bibles, flip around. Um, we're going to be all over the place because there's no one book of the Bible. It's like, this is the hell book. Read this book of the Bible. It's all across the board. We're going to be in several places. One thing I want just us to realize as we're getting started here is that the only way we know what we know about hell is because Jesus taught about hell more than anybody else. Up until we get to Jesus in the Bible, we really don't have a clear articulation of what hell is like. And then Jesus comes, and we think of Jesus, right? He is, he shows us the love of God. John 3.16 says, how do we know God's love? It's because Jesus came. 
So Jesus magnifies the love of God so we can see it so clearly, but he also magnifies the judgment and wrath of God. In fact, 13% of everything Jesus taught was about wrath and judgment and hell. That's a lot of wrath and judgment and hell from Jesus. But Jesus is also the way we know. So here's the thing, we can't reject hell without also rejecting Jesus. Jesus and hell go hand in hand. Now, not that Jesus likes hell, not that, but, but we know about hell because of Jesus' teaching. And, and in fact, there's the, word, the word used for hell most frequently in the New Testament is Gehenna. Uh, it comes from two words, Gehenim, and in the Hebrew, that means the Valley of Hinnom, and the Valley of Hinnom was this place where they dumped trash, and terrible things happened there throughout the history of Israel, and so Gehenna is what became known to be the word for hell. And Jesus, is, this word's used 12 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses it 11 times. Jesus is the primary teacher on hell in the Bible. And I just want to establish that as we go forward, because a lot of times we can say, oh yeah, but I I know hell, like the Bible teaches about it, but Jesus is loving. It goes hand in hand. You can't have Jesus' love without the justice of hell. All right, so let's go to our Bibles here. The first place we're going to start off is Revelation chapter 14 in verse 9. Just a couple verses. Again, we'll be going different places. Uh, This is a part of Revelation where it's talking about different angels coming forward. And what's going to happen? It's kind of given prophecies here. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 9, says this. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Now here's the key. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here's the very first thing. I'm gonna give you three things we need, to, we need to have and hold on to about hell. The very first thing that we need to have in mind about hell is this, and it's a tough one. Hell is eternal and it's eternal Suffering. I want to unpack that a little bit, but hell is eternal and eternal suffering. Here it says in these verses that the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. But, but I want to clarify what the Bible teaches about hell because the Bible does not teach that hell is torture. I think a lot of us have this mentality. And this, you go back to medieval era and it comes from like the paintings that were done then and the views then that have all these, these paintings of like Satan and his angels tormenting people in hell and doing weird stuff and putting them in pots of boiling oil um, and all this weird stuff that they were probably doing at the time to people, um, not in hell, but in actuality. And then they all thought, well, this is the worst that could happen, must happen in hell too. Hell is not torture, it's suffering. And the difference is, is that God is not down there, or the, Satan's not down there torturing people. In fact, Satan, we'll learn this in a second, will be in hell. But he will be suffering more than anyone in hell. And so the, the hell is not torture, but it's suffering. What kind of suffering is it? It's, it's deprivation of God. It's God, God and all of his goodness and his blessings are gone. Think about how bad life can be here, right? It's, it can be really tough sometimes. But, but the Bible's clear. It says God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, which is a good thing. In other words, crops can grow. God's gonna send his son to shine on the evil and on the good. So no matter who you are in this world, you're gonna receive some of the blessings and the goodness of God. Imagine all of that being taken away. 
Every bit of that. You, you're in isolation. You're in suffering for eternity. That's, what we're, that's what's talked about. Over and over again in the Bible, there is this, this image used of fire and burning related to hell. But there's also, like for instance, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus talks about how hell is like this darkness that's there. So the, the idea that the Bible's teaching is, and I, I don't believe that, that hell will actually be fiery. Um, not that I don't believe the Bible. I think this is figurative language to show us something, that, to represent something that's probably far worse than that. So it's not just burning. It's not just darkness. It's all of that together and way worse. And we're outside, we're told other places, that we're separated from God and his people. We're outside the wall. So in other words, there's this separation from God and his people. And that's what hell is. So I remember being a kid. I was six years old or so, maybe five years old, being in church on a Sunday night. The church I went to at that time had testimony night on Sunday nights. Anybody go to a church like that? People would just stand up and give testimonies. I kind of miss that a little bit. Except I know who comes here and I'm just afraid of the things you might say. You know what I'm saying? If anybody could stand up and say something... Man, you guys will say some weird stuff. But this lady stood up. I was five years old or six years old, something like that. It's stuck in my head to this day. And she had burned her hand that week cooking. I think some oil had come out on it, and so she had burned her hand. And I remember her saying, just knowing like the pain of that on my hand, knowing that that's what it's like for eternity in hell makes me like so thankful for what Jesus has done to save me. And I remember as a kid being like, shoot, that's real. Like, I think, I think I was already, I, already, like, I became a Christian when I was five, so I, I was one of those whole, super holy ones, you know? So I became a Christian when I was really young. But I remember thinking even then, like, dang, that's for real. Now, now here's the truth. The Bible uses fire language, but that's figurative. It's a metaphor to point us to a far deeper, darker, harsher reality of what deprivation of all relationships, of all God's goodness looks like in our life. Hell is eternal suffering. Now, there's a couple different views of hell. Uh, there's the traditional one, which I just shared, which is what most Christians throughout most of history have believed, that hell is real, hell is eternal. If you, if you end up in hell, there is no way out. That is your reality. But there are two other views I want to highlight for you. And they're, they're, I think they're incredibly unbiblical. Uh, one is annihilationism. Annihilationism is the idea that you can go to hell and then eventually you will just cease to exist. You'll be snuffed out and that you will be no more and that's it. So hell is for a time, and then you're gone. So it's like you're being annihilated, annihilationism. Um, this one is, is people, people point to the Bible for this one. It's really not in there from anything I can read and tell, um, especially because Jesus was speaking when he was teaching on this. He was speaking to a context in which the dominant view of the day, the Jewish view, was that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught about the immortality of the soul. They taught that the soul would go into eternal life or eternal death forever. And Jesus is teaching in this context. So if he says... Uh, this is going to be eternal punishment, they would have understood, they would have heard it as the person will exist in hell forever. So it's, it's not thoroughly not biblical. The other one is called universalism. Now, this is one that a lot of people today like. Universalism is really attractive. It says that uh, everyone who, who is not a follower of Jesus goes to hell, but across time, God draws them with his love and draws them to himself. Now, this is very popular because none of us like the idea of eternal hell. None of us want to hear about it. However, there is nothing in the Bible that suggests this. This is simply warm fuzzies that we want to have and our greatest desires of what we hope could happen. This is not reality. What the Bible is so clear on is that hell is eternal suffering and separation from God and his people. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. I love that Matt's here and he's not uncomfortable. The rest of us who haven't read the Bible as much, which is true, uh, we're uncomfortable with it. I, I'm uncomfortable with it. But I embrace it 
because it is reality. It's like, I, I can wish it were not, but it's, it's the truth. It's what Jesus taught. If I'm going to take, receive Jesus as my Savior, I have to receive his teaching about hell. So that's the first thing, is that hell is eternal suffering and separation. One final verse, just to kind of bring this all together. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus is talking about a judging two groups of people, one that have done good, one that have done evil. Uh, and he says, or one that haven't served him like they should. And he talks about one, the sheep in this represented by sheep, will go into eternal life and the others into eternal death. This is what it says, Matthew 25, verse 46, talking about those who are evil. It says, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Those are the two options in front of us. Every single person, eternal punishment or eternal life. Here's the second thing about hell I wanna say. So hell is eternal suffering and separation from God. But the second thing is this. This is a little bit harder of a pill to swallow for us that hell is necessary. Hell is necessary. A lot of us think, well, couldn't God have done it another way? Couldn't God have done something else? No, hell is necessary. Do you know why hell was created? The Bible's very clear on this. Hell was not created for people who've done bad things. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. It says this, the same chapter we were just in a second ago, Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus says, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea of hell because we don't understand why it was created in the first place. Hell is a place that eventually, the Revelation says death and Hades, which is another word for hell as well, will be thrown into this lake of fire along with anyone who opposes God, along with Satan and his angels. Originally, hell was prepared for Satan and his angels, those who have rebelled against God. And we should embrace that. Satan has rebelled against God. He has wreaked havoc in this world. And we should trust God's judgment of him and his angels to eternal fire, eternal hell. We should embrace that. Uh, but it gets harder for us when we start thinking, okay, so hell is necessary for that. Why is it necessary for humans? And this is where we start to struggle a little bit. And I want, I want to be clear about something. The only reason we struggle with this is because of where we live. Throughout human history, people have not struggled with the concept of hell. Around the world today, the majority of people do not struggle with the concept of hell. It's almost exclusively people who live in Western cultures, America and Europe. We struggle with this concept of hell because we live safe, easy lives. Now you're thinking, my life's not easy. Compared to human history, it is so easy. When's the last time you had people, Assyrians coming through on horses and camels, killing everything and burning everything in their path? Jackson hasn't been burned down for a while, at least. I mean, like, we're okay, right? We're doing pretty well. No one's coming through with tanks right now blowing everything up. No one's hacking our families to pieces. Like, the reason that we can be okay or we, we cannot be okay with hell is because we haven't had to live through a hell right now. Now, some of us have, right? And, and when you have to live through injustice that's perpetual and ongoing, suddenly you see why hell might need to exist. This problem of not wanting hell is an us problem. It's not a God problem. It's not a reality problem. It's an us problem. We don't see the need for it. It doesn't mean there's not a need. And, and over and over again throughout history, there have been people who have cried out for justice from God. And hell, regardless of what happens on this earth, hell is the ultimate justice God brings. Hell is necessary. Now, here's, here's my pushback against that. I'm trying to, this is kind of a conversation between me and me in the Bible right now. My pushback against that is, couldn't, couldn't God... 
I mean, couldn't he just, at the end of time, punish people some, and maybe like universalism, pull them back in, pull them back into his fold? And the answer to that is absolutely not. There's a quote from J.P. Moreland. He's a philosopher. And if you want to read more on this, we can't cover everything today. If you want to read more on this topic, uh, get the book The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel. And they have a, a chapter on hell in that, which is the best out of all the reading I've done in preparation for this message, best chapter I've read. And in there, J.P. Moreland is being interviewed. He's a philosopher, and he says this. What hell does is it recognizes that people have intrinsic value. In other words, in, in who they are, they have value. God lo- if God loves intrinsic value, then he has got to be a sustainer of persons because that means he's the sustainer of intrinsic values. This is the key. He refuses to snuff out a creature that was made in his own image. So in the final analysis, hell is the only morally legitimate option. God doesn't like it, but he quarantines them. And this honors their freedom of choice, and he will not override that. So a lot of us have this image that at the end of time, God condemns people to hell and kicking and screaming, they're going and saying, no, let me come back, let me come back. If I could have just lived 30 seconds longer, I could have believed in Jesus. Just give me a little bit more time. And God, cold, hard-hearted God says, no, you had 75 years and you didn't need 75 years and 30 seconds. Go to hell. That's, that's, not, that's not the reality. The reality is that God honors our freedom of choice. And God honors the value of the individual. And he refuses to snuff out that value by destroying someone forever. But he also refuses to make us choose something that we haven't wanted to choose. He allows us to choose our own way. And hell is ultimately us choosing our own way. There's this, there's this story, it's a parable in Luke chapter 16 about a guy named Lazarus, not the one who was raised from the dead, different Lazarus, and a rich man. Rich man doesn't get a name, unfortunately. Lazarus was poor, he laid by the, said laid by the city gate, he had to beg, he had dogs come up and lick his sores, just disgusting, filthy life. You had the rich man who didn't do anything, only took care of himself. They die, this is a parable again, so how much does this reflect the actual reality? They die, and Lazarus is at the side of Abraham in like a heaven-like place. And it says that the rich man is in Hades and he's suffering. And even in his suffering, he says, Abraham, send Lazarus down to me with a little bit of water on his finger for me to drink. Now there's two ways to take this. One is like he just really needed help. The other is even in hell, he's still trying to order the poor man around. It's interesting in this story, Luke chapter 16, it's probably the, the most intense story we get of the experience of hell. Even in this story, the rich man never once says, hey, is there any way I can leave here? Now he does say, I want you to go tell my brothers, but even in hell, he is not trying to get out of hell. Isn't that weird? You think he should be like, hey, let me get out of hell. No, he says like, hey, go send someone to tell my brothers. He does not try. So what, what a teacher named Tim Keller says is this that when you set a trajectory in your life and you start going that direction, God allows you to continue on your own trajectory. In other words, if you, if you start living away apart from God and start going that direction, God allows you to. We think if people had more time, they, they would really come to Jesus, would they? Think, think about it this. Most people become a Christian when they're a kid. There's a real reason, a spiritual reason for this. The longer you are set in your own way apart from God, the harder it is to submit to the lordship of Jesus. Imagine 10,000 years into eternity. 10,000 years into eternity. Are you going to be like, oh, you know what? It's time to submit to the lordship of Jesus. I've gone 10,000 years plus 70. I'm ready to submit to the lordship of Jesus. No. 
you will continue on your way. So here's the first reality, that hell is eternal suffering and separation from God. The second is that hell is necessary. Now here's the third one. I'm gonna spend a little bit more time on this one because this is the real question, I think, of hell. And that is, is hell really fair? And so kind of the third concept I want you to step away with is that hell is fair. I wanna explain how it is fair because it doesn't seem. It's like, here's our question. Okay, across 75 years, can I really do enough bad things to earn an eternity of separation from God? We've already established that in a lot of ways, you're setting the trajectory for the rest of your existence that you probably won't deviate from. But let's, let's address that question. In 75 years, do you really do enough to, to earn an eternity apart from God? Two important points on this, to understand the depth of our sin. The first is this. When we are judging people or convicting people in a court of law, we don't convict them based on how long it took to do the crime. For instance, you could have a Slurpee from 7-Eleven. Some of you, because I said that, will go get one this afternoon, right? And if I saw your Slurpee from 7-Eleven, and I planned an intricate and elaborate plan, and it took me three hours to steal your Slurpee, but I still stole your Slurpee, and I drank it myself, and I would, it would be disgusting by that point, it would be melted by that point, but I got your Slurpee. Took me three hours to steal it, but I created this amazing plan from Ocean's Eleven to do it. And I get your Slurpee, and I drink your Slurpee. I've stolen your Slurpee, and I go. They take me into petty theft or whatever court, you know, misdemeanor court, and they convict me. I'm going to get a slap on the wrist because it was a Slurpee. Doesn't matter. It took me three hours to do it. In fact, I could I can make a plan for for five weeks. I'm going to plan out how I'm going to steal your Slurpee, and I steal it. I'm going to get the same charge. If it takes me six seconds to walk down here and murder Mason. Some of you don't know Mason. He'd be hard to murder in six seconds, but I might be able to do it. If I killed him in six seconds, I would still be convicted of the full length of time. I would be put into prison for life. The length of time you commit a crime does not determine the punishment you receive. Same is true for us. You say, I have 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95 years, and that's all. What does that compare to eternity? It's not about the time. It's about the crime we have committed, what we have done, and what have we done. Here's the second thing we have to understand. What we have done is not just done a whoopsie. Oh, I'm sorry. We have sinned against an eternal, infinite God. We have rebelled against him. We have rejected him. We have spat in his face. We have done what we clearly know to be wrong against God and other people. And for that, we deserve an infinite, eternal punishment. What we do and who we do it against is what determines the crime. Friend, I'll give you this, this, this example. Uh, I did a, I did a um, white elephant gift exchange a number of years ago. I was back in high school. And I hit the jackpot. You know, white elephant gift exchanges are the worst usually end up with something worse than you came with. So I've always decided now, instead of trying to find the best present, I'm just gonna get a gift card for the amount of whatever, if it's a $10 amount, I just get that gift card, and at least I can steal back my gift card and end up even, right? Because like I always end up less than. But this year, I got something way better. I got an electric bug zapper. Wow. It's like a small tennis racket, you could press a button on, it would electrify the wires, and you could zap bugs. Just like there'd be a spark when you hit them. You could also zap people, right? Um, there would be a spark when you hit them too. Now imagine this, and we tried it. Trust me, we, tried, we did it many times. I had two younger brothers. So we tried it many times. But imagine this. Imagine if you, if you had that bug zapper and cockroach. You find a cockroach. I know most of us hate cockroaches. If somebody here loves cockroaches, just nobody cares. Don't say anything. And you shock and you kill, you zap a cockroach. 
Who thinks that's morally wrong? Okay, I get out. I told you, don't say anything if you did. All right, let's say you have a, you have a dog-sized zapper. And it can do the same thing you did to a cockroach, but to a dog. And you zap the dog. And you kill the dog. That's horrible. You're going <laughs> to... For most people, that's horrible. And, and, and you should get a punishment under law. And you will. We'll make sure at Foundry, you will, okay? If that happens, we will stand there and testify against you. But if you had a human-sized version of that and you do it to a human, how much greater will the penalty be? And the penalty should be that much greater. So imagine if we've committed crimes not just against cockroaches and dogs and humans, but against an infinite and eternal God, we deserve and have earned an infinite and eternal punishment. The reality is that when we sin against a holy God who is just, he, he must, he must be just and righteous and bring that out. He must convict us. Now, uh, one final thing, and I'm going to wrap this up, um, and it's going it's to wrap up happier than it's been during this message. One final thing I want to highlight here is that there seem to be, the Bible teaches, degrees of suffering in hell. Because I've always had this issue. It's like, okay, so Hitler killed six million people, and I disobeyed my parents, and we're getting the same thing? Does that seem crazy to anybody? It seems crazy to me. Now, I know we've all sinned against God, but it does seem clear in the Bible that there, there are levels, degrees of suffering. Let me show you what I mean in a couple places. Luke chapter 12, 47 to 48. Jesus, Jesus is talking about, he's doing, telling a parable here, and he's talking about how a master goes away and then comes back. and It's, it's all in light of because Jesus is coming back someday. But in verses 47 and 48, he says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be meet, beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. I mean, it's all set in the context of like judgment coming. In other words, if you know what you're supposed to do and you do the wrong thing, you're getting a lot of blows. If you don't know, then you're not gonna get beaten as much. Okay, that's, that's the parable, which tells us in judgment in eternity, there will be levels, degrees of suffering. Here's another verse, uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verses 23 to 24. Jesus is talking to cities that didn't listen to his message. And he says, you, Capernaum, one of these cities, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. In other words, it'll be worse for you than it will for them. There are degrees of suffering in hell. So here, here's, we have to step back and look at hell and say, I'm uncomfortable with it. You may not be. If you're not, most people in the world are not uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable with it because of where I was, grew up and what we think here. But it's reality. It's eternal suffering. It's necessary, but it's fair. It is fair. And we have to end up at this place where God is God and we are not. And he has a reason for doing it. And we've, we can see his reason. We may not like it. You may not embrace it, but he has his reason for doing it. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis always gets quoted a bunch in messages like this. In fact, this is my second message I preached in this series, and I've talked about C.S. Lewis twice. And on my third message, I'll probably talk about him a third time. This is what he said. He said, in the long run, and this is for all of you who are still uncomfortable with the idea, who don't like the idea. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. And here's the question. What are you actually asking God to do? To wipe out the past sins of the damned and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? 
He's already done so in Jesus. Are you asking God to forgive them? They do not want to be forgiven. Are you asking God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Hell is our free will and our decisions and our value at work for eternity if we reject God and continue to reject God. So where does this leave us? I think for those of us who are here and not confident in our relationship with Jesus, we should be terrified. I think we should, we should be sober. We, sh- we should be serious about what this means for our lives. If, if you are not in a close relationship with Jesus and you have exposed yourself to an eternity without him, we should instantly right now come to him and repent and come into a relationship with him. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you should be terrified for the people in your life who don't know Jesus. You should be sober. And you should do everything you can to help the people in your life who don't know Jesus come to know him. The only way, the only way that we don't end up in hell is by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, his son. Hell is not a comfortable or fun topic, but it will be reality for the vast majority of this world. And it's our responsibility to change that. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else because Jesus is the only salvation from hell and there is no one else. Let's pray.